Are you underutilizing one of the most powerful restaurant marketing tools on the planet? What do 92 million monthly Yelp searchers see when they land on your page? Is your content accurate and attention grabbing? Are you using every conversion tool possible to set yourself apart? Yelp is here to help. Go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to sign up for a one-on-one with a specialist that will review your Yelp page and share tips to help you stand out. Again, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to supercharge your Yelp page today. Now here we go. I have no shame around my alcohol use disorder and what brought me to this topic. But if my mission is to normalize not drinking, I want people who also drink to feel like they're invited to this party. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Is there anything more foundational to the hospitality industry than booze? Whether it's selling drinks to customers or grabbing drinks with coworkers, the social dynamics of the restaurant industry revolve around booze, or at least they did. The data is clear, people are drinking less. Today I chat with author Julia Bainbridge about the sobriety movement and what it means for both restaurants and cocktail culture. I was speaking with Samuel Acuff this morning, and he's a clinical psychology doctoral student at the University of Memphis. He has this under-review meta-analytic paper that summarizes what we know about changes in alcohol consumption during the pandemic. And I asked him to track back and look at what was happening with drinking leading up to the pandemic. And yes, around 64% of Americans identified as drinkers in 2000, and that steadily declined to 54 by 2016. And then to get more recent data, we looked at a 2019 national survey on drug use and health, and it looked like since 2015, alcohol consumption among 18 to 25-year-olds was slightly decreasing. For those 26 and older, consumption was relatively stable, but that emerging adult cohort is certainly drinking slightly less and less as time goes on. But then when it comes to the pandemic, covid He thinks probably had a pretty big effect on accelerating a decreasing trend in alcohol consumption among those emerging adults. So 50% of them reported a decrease in alcohol consumption during COVID, but 40%, I think, of 35 to 44-year-olds reported an increase in drinking during the pandemic. So like in his analysis, he found that if you look at the mean levels of change, there appears to be no change during COVID during the first wave. However, if you look at percentages of people saying they increased or decreased, you see equal numbers that increased and decreased, suggesting that the pandemic likely had different effects on people depending on a variety of factors, like whether they were living in, with children or lost their job or what context they drank in pre-COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But the shift that was going on before COVID hit I don't know, man. I would point you to researchers who can better assess the why around that small shift. I'm always so reluctant to speak to things like this when I don't have population level data. (laughs) For sure. But for those who have been part of that shift, I think this evolution of drinking habits has been taking shape for a little while now. I mean, there's the big word wellness, right? It's like we're more conscious of what we put in our bodies. We read labels. We like to know where things come from. And I think 
The big thing for me and that I hear just anecdotally from friends and other people, I guess largely in my age group, I'm 38, so I fall in that actually in the group of people who are drinking more during COVID, but I think we're kind of waking up to some of the more subtle dangers of alcohol, right? Like someone who has a glass of wine a night might not meet the criteria for an alcohol use disorder, but that doesn't mean alcohol isn't a problem for them. Maybe they're experiencing sleep impairment or next day anxiety or slight weight gain or some other consequence that may be meaningful to them and disrupt their lives, again, in smaller ways than the ones we associate with those struggling with AUD. And then finally, and I swear I'm going to shut up, but I also think we have to consider replacements. I mean, the continued legalization of cannabis is going to majorly affect the alcohol industry, I have no doubt. I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, to speak to the daily wine drinker, what I saw over my own life is that you don't really notice gradual declines in performance, that you're a little sleepier when you wake up in the morning or that your sleep wasn't as restful. What I found in my own life was kind of this slow, steady decline in performance over time that I only realized once I quit drinking entirely, which is one of the things that inspired me to make specific changes in my own life. I'm not going to tell you I'm never going to have another drink again. I'm just going to tell you that where I find myself in this moment in time is I feel like I function better without it. Yeah, I think the taking a break bit is really interesting because once you remove the thing, that's when you better understand your relationship to the thing. So I think that's why people are into dry January and sober October. It's a welcome pause. And I think a lot of people come out of that month off, if that's how long they determine to do it, having kind of reassessed the amount they'll drink after that. And then just do it every year on an ongoing basis so you have that little sort of check and balance on your consumption. Well, and then we look at the impacts that these thought processes and these behaviors have had on the industry. And I think during that time that you had made that decision to dry out, there was a huge non-alcoholic beverage movement that you were able to actively track across the country. The timing was serendipitous. It really was. Also, your position within the dynamic of this overall thing is really interesting to me because it's one thing to participate in a movement. It's another thing to advocate for it. But you chose it as like an area of focus and study professionally. And I'm curious to know how you came to that decision. Well, I don't know if I chose it or it chose me that trite thing or if this organically became my beat, right? So my background has been in food and drink. I've been an editor and a generalist at publications like Bon Appetit and Food and Wine, was the food editor of Atlanta Magazine. So this meant I was covering all kinds of food and drink, the latter being alcoholic and non-alcoholic. But again, when I made this personal shift serendipitously, I was (laughs) out at bars and restaurants looking for things to drink that weren't soda and weren't water. And it just was hard not to notice that more real estate on beverage menus was being taken up by this category. And so what a happy thing to happen (laughs) for me. And I just sort of like went deeper into it. So I don't know that I at any time strategically made the decision that I was going to be the champion of the alcohol-free category, but I was just genuinely, you know, it's such a privilege, right? Like to explore something in your professional life that you're interested in personally. And I just sort of was led into it naturally because I was reflecting what was actually going on in the industry. So they were the drivers of this, the bartenders and restaurateurs who were putting effort into this. And I was just reflecting and championing that work. What did the research look like for the book? Because 
you cover the bartenders from all over the country. And I can't imagine you had access to menus from all over the country. So what did that research look like? Oh, no, I did. I mean, I got in my car and drove across country a couple of times. I lived on the road for six months. Like there's only so much research you can do from afar, from my computer in my Brooklyn apartment. That's true with anything, but certainly true with this, which was and even is still kind of like a new category. So you start with looking at what local media has written about the topic you're interested in. And there was a little bit, and that gave me a starting point for each city I knew I wanted to go to, but not a lot. So you give one day in the city to sort of get your bearings, to go to those places that have already been written about, to, I also reached out to local media. It was so fun to see some of my friends or even sort of friends I've made through being a member of food media. It's pretty incestuous. Everybody knows everybody, but <laughs> so we might have sort of virtual friendships and I had never even met some of these people in person. And so I got to do that and on their own turfs and that was fun. And then some people I just cold emailed saying, hey, my name's Julia Bainbridge. I'm working on this book. Here's where I've worked in the past to prove to them that I was legitimate. And can I take you for a drink while I'm in town? So day one would be hitting some spots that had already been written about myself and then also taking some local media out to pick their brains. And then also just started talking to bartenders and restaurateurs on the ground so they could point me to other things. And so I cast a really wide net. I considered places that weren't just cocktail bars or fine restaurants. And I pounded the pavement and went there in person. Part of that was because it was fun. (laughs) I look back on that trip so nostalgically now that we can move about less freely. And I wanted to create relationships with these people in person. Also, I struggle with sometimes saying I wrote the book because really it's a compendium. I put the book together and I did a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I tested the shit out of these recipes (laughs) and did a lot of work to select them and pitch the book and get it sold in the first place. But it is built on the work of these people in the industry. So it was important to me, quite frankly, to meet them in person and come to their establishments if I was going to ask for their intellectual property to put in my book. And Another reason is that, again, I couldn't have anticipated COVID, but the book was intended not only to be a resource for people who either like the tinkering in the kitchen or their home alcohol-free bar or don't yet live in cities, were a large number of restaurants that were devoting effort to thoughtful, non-alcoholic drinks. So it was meant to really give people recipes to make at home, but it was also meant to be a guidebook. There's a list of all the restaurants and bars that contributed recipes, as well as some others that I liked and where I found some really thoughtful drinks. Because the idea was anytime you're traveling to these cities, you know you can go here and get something that is not alcoholic and thoughtful. And it was important to me that if I was going to make that part of the approach, that I see these places in person. There's only so much you can get from a restaurant website. Some places have really slick websites. And when I show up in person, it's not something that I'd recommend to a friend. And (laughs) some places don't even have an online presence and they're awesome, right? So Mm -hmm. it was important to me that if I was going to recommend that readers go to these places that I had been there myself and could vouch for. I also think that it's getting better now, but historically too often food media has focused on the coasts and I really wanted to shine a light on the talent all throughout this country. And boy is their talent. They're just such passionate, obsessed, geeky (laughs) people all over this country who are making really delicious 
drinks, whether they contain alcohol or not. And so it was great to get to include many of them. You also shined a light on something. When I first saw the book, when I first saw the title of the book, there was a real aha moment for me. For those that haven't read the book yet, it's called Good Drinks, Alcohol-Free Recipes for When You're Not Drinking for Whatever Reason. Mm -hmm. I think that there is certainly a stigma associated with excessive alcohol consumption, but I would also argue that there's a stigma associated with not drinking. And I think you spoke to that so clearly in the title. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it kind of blows my mind that some people feel entitled to an understanding of why you might not be drinking. First of all, there are many reasons. And that's part of the reason for that Dr. Susie and Long subtitle, religion, health issues, pregnancy, mindful living. Maybe they're just not drinking this week or night or hour. But another reason is, yes, an alcohol use disorder, and that's something the person struggling might not want to discuss. Someone, I think it might have been Holly Whitaker, who wrote Quit Like a Woman, put it this way, alcohol is the only drug you have to justify not taking. (laughs) so, So I want not drinking to be as normalized as drinking is. And we're really not there yet. I think sometimes I think we are, and I'm guilty of getting too comfortable inside my little bubble now that I'm like immersed in this. But my friend and writer, Jason Diamond, he reminded me just a couple of weeks ago that that's really not the case. And this is in New York, which you could argue is a sophisticated metropolitan place. He told a few people that he decided to stop drinking for the summer. And two of them said something along the lines of, wow, that'll be hard. And he was just like, why should taking a few months off seem shocking? You know, I mean, Jason enjoys drinking and plans on probably doing it again. He just overdid it last year. And those are his words, not mine, and wants to take a break. But quickly, he's realized that how it seems off or odd to some people. So much of the mission of my work is just to celebrate and normalize not drinking. But I guess the last point I'll make on this is that like, I don't know. I also have compassion for that reaction. Like, just as you said, there are a lot of messages flying around about alcohol, especially in this, I guess, Protestant founded country, like the consumption of it's glamorized, but it's also moralized and stigmatized. And so I think I have compassion for people who kind of instinctively react to someone's not drinking or having removed alcohol from his or her life by poking fun or maybe like questioning the choice. I think it's a human reaction. It's what we do when we feel that embedded in someone else's behavior is a judgment of our own, you know? I think that's a great point. And it was going to be my next point, which is you manage to tackle the subject without judgment. You're not advocating for more abstinence in the world. You're just advocating for choice. And I'm curious to know if that was a strategic move, if that was a thoughtful choice that you made, or that is just an exemplification of your own personal ideology. Yeah, definitely strategic, but also it's what I believe. I am not anti-alcohol. I think it's great for those who can manage it. I think it's delicious. I think it's a social aid, right? It triggers the endorphin system, which lowers anxiety and allows for the forming of bonds. I miss it sometimes. Like alcohol can unlock some things for me when it comes to writing. You know, it stops me from self-editing. I kind of can dip into places that I wouldn't in my sober mind. I'm kind of uh, freer and looser on the page, I think. But alcohol is also a highly addictive substance and not everybody can manage it. Just as we were saying, look at the popularity of dry January. I think the argument could be made that it shows just how difficult it is to consume alcohol in a healthy way consistently. People need a break to reset. 
as for people in the U.S. who have alcohol use disorder, it's, I think, at least as of last year, it was around 15 million, according to the NIAAA, which is, oh God, I always butcher it, National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, I think. And more than that number remain undiagnosed. And there are plenty of others who choose not to drink for other reasons, as we talked about. So for them and for me, I'm all about celebrating all of the delicious adult things there now are for us to drink, but I don't demonize alcohol either. And the strategy part was definitely how I positioned the book when it came out, how I talked about it. You know, I have no shame around my alcohol use disorder and what brought me to this topic and this way of life. But if my mission is to normalize not drinking, I want people who also drink to feel like they're invited to this party. For this to become mainstream, it can't be positioned as a book for sober people exclusively. Of course, those people are who I have in mind also. And much of the book is about making them feel seen. Much of all of the work I do (laughs) is about making them feel seen and celebrated. But I was careful not to go on too many sobriety podcasts and to make sure that I really position this in a way that, again, everybody felt as if they were invited. And it means a lot of friends of mine who do drink have tinkered around with some of these alcohol-free drinks and enjoy them on a Tuesday night or whatever it may be. Absolutely. I think in large part, what we're talking about here is an evolution in choice. And I think that it began with mocktails, which is kind of a gross way to describe it, (laughs) and then evolved into bottle shops that are exclusively carrying non-alcoholic beverages. Are you following the trends? What big changes, what big trends do you see and what do you think is coming next? Yeah, I mean, The non-alcoholic bottle shops, there are three now, at least in New York. I don't know that we can call it a trend yet. I don't know that there are many in other areas of the country. I'm not sure. Do you have one where you are? No, not yet. But just prior to the pandemic, people started coming in, liquor reps started coming in selling non-alcoholic spirits. Right, right. And that is certainly true. And yeah, it's interesting. The manuscript for my book was filed at a time when Seedlip was really like the only alcohol spirit that was accessible. And so a lot of the book reflects approaches from the ground up. There weren't products to lean on to give you bitterness or backbone or whatever else you were looking for out of the cocktail you were making. And so it involves cooking, you know, like I tell people, you got to roll your sleeves. But if you want to get layers of complexity in a non-alcoholic context that you might have gotten with alcohol, you're going to have to like steep a bunch of different teas with a bunch of different citrus peels and do a little tinkering in the kitchen. But the good thing is there are so many more products on the market now. And in the U.S. too, like we're a little behind the U.K. Other parts of the world are a little ahead of us here, but it's exciting to see that there are more and more options in the U.S. So that for those people who don't like to cook or do that tinkering, you can just open a bottle, pour it in, maybe mix it with some soda water. And there you go. You have something that feels more adult than a juice. But I guess when I think about the non-alcoholic bottle shops, I think it's great. I think they have value right now. I guess more than predicting the future, I can tell you what I want. I guess I would hope that there doesn't need to be a non-alcoholic bottle shop and there doesn't need to be a book on non-alcoholic drinks, that these things would be incorporated and not segregated. I hope we'll also lean into the idea of these drinks being non-alcoholic and celebrate them for their own virtues. Mindset's important when it comes to making these drinks. I want people to stop worrying about whether or not 
the non-alcoholic cocktail they're making tastes akin to an alcoholic version of the drink and simply focus on whether it tastes good or not. You know, I almost do these drinks a disservice by comparing them to cocktails. They don't have alcohol in them. Like ethanol behaves in a really particular way. So they're going to be different and that's okay. So I'm kind of interested in the non-spirit-like non-alcoholic drinks. I'm interested in beverages that are inherently non-alcoholic ones that are not trying to relate to the world of alcohol. I'm thinking, for example, of this kind of third wave of kombuchas. I just wrote a story for the Wall Street Journal on this class of small batch brews whose makers are leaning into the tea itself and not doctoring the drink with any fruit flavors on the back end and just rigorously sourcing those teas and kind of unlocking complexity in those teas through the process of fermentation. And they intend for what they're making to be paired with food. I think that's really exciting. So. I am incredibly lazy when it comes to me making my own drinks for myself. The reason I had asked in the pre-interview about why not just drink water, because I really felt like I was in the bar industry for 15 plus years. And that always seemed to be the, the position of the industry at large to anyone that wanted something special or different or crafted. Having said that, when we opened Pru and Proper in downtown Los Angeles, we did develop an entirely non-alcoholic offering. It was comprised of six drinks, scratch ingredients. We put a lot of time and effort into it. And those drinks sold incredibly well. What we found was is that we certainly weren't selling them at the same volume, but instead of getting one glass of wine at dinner, an individual would drink two of those mocktails. So we were able to sell substantially more to substantially fewer people. So I love the trend. Yeah. And again, when you're thinking about the people who are sober and coming in to dine at your establishment who would otherwise be drinking water, the argument could be made that you could make more off of them if, <laughs> if you do have something that, you know, you've made that warrants a higher price tag. I don't agitate so much, but there was a restaurant that opened within the past year in New York, and I was really interested in going, but I noticed that they were all about the wine list and there was really nothing non-alcoholic on offer. And I don't know, I vacillate between like, whatever, it's their own establishment, they can offer what they want and it's 2021 and hospitality should be about including non-drinkers too, right? So I did... <laughs> I did like to one of their Instagram posts about the wine list. I was said like, and so what do you have for people who don't drink wine at all? <laughs> and I then went to the restaurant and they had put something, I guess they saw that I was coming, which like, I don't believe that anybody knows who I am. That's a weird thing, right? Like I just didn't anticipate that, but I arrived at dinner and they had made a shrub and it was a really late reservation that I had. It was like a 10 o'clock dinner. And they said, you know, we put this on the menu today. And I actually had to reserve one to make sure there was one when you got here because it sold so well that we like didn't have any more volume of this left. So I guess the point is, yeah, they actually do sell. <laughs> right. And that is the point, right? The point ultimately of the conversation is going to come down to something that you've advocated for years, which is choice right? It's about more choice. And as a restaurateur, most of us, our hearts are in the right place. And it's about serving people and serving people in a way that makes them feel seen and heard and special. And I think that there's a place for this within the industry. And I guess I'm going back to the water thing now. It's like, why not just drink water? Water's great. 
right? Like I drink it all day, every day. (laughs) But in my experience, that question only comes from those who don't identify as sober or who haven't ever taken a significant time off from regularly consuming alcohol. In other words, like someone who hasn't experienced many, many, many consecutive days of drinking just water and would really welcome something different. So like, of course, there's tea and soda and juice and all sorts of non-alcoholic beverages already in existence. But what I'm usually talking about when I'm talking about this category is something different. And I guess what's a cocktail, right? Like, I think that's a good place to start. I think it's probably less helpful to get geeky about the history of the term, because trust me, that could go on and on and more helpful to kind of unpack what we mean when we use it today, right? Like we think of a cocktail as having a mixture of often diverse elements or ingredients, right? We think of a cocktail as requiring care and skill to make. So I would venture to say that fizzy lemonade isn't really a non-alcoholic cocktail. Syrup and soda water isn't a non-alcoholic cocktail, right? And there's an adult quality to a cocktail too. Like, of course, highballs or long fizzy drinks or cocktails you might guzzle, but mostly I think of them as drinks that make us slow down and appreciate them. I remember talking to John Wiseman. He's founder of Curious Elixirs, which is a bottled non-alcoholic cocktail company. And he put it this way that it can't just have one or two notes to it. It kind of has to have at least three so you can try to pick them apart. Why? Like, because that's fun. (laughs) Like, you know, so I guess another response is you say, why not drink water? I say, why not drink Woodnose or Gia or Wine Proxy? Sometimes water's rad, but like, why not these other things sometimes? And when you look out there, you do see restaurants that have embraced this in bars as well, and they're participating actively in the movement. In the research you did, who are the front runners that are really creating the innovation in this sector? Oh, Julia Momose at Kumiko in Chicago has this name come up for you. She's the goat, really. She's who opened my mind up to thinking about terminology. She wrote like a manifesto in 2017, sort of against the term mocktail and for spirit-free. Anyway, so much to be said about Julia. Also, Han Suk Cho in Los Angeles. I first met her at Single Thread and then followed her work to Dialogue and Pajoli. Now she's cooking at Nanaka, but she has her own non-alcoholic business called Zero Proof Beverages, I think. Her two-car garage that she has with her husband is actually full of just like various fermentations and fruits and shoots and things that she's working with to make these really beautiful drinks. Piper Christensen at Oxalis in Brooklyn is doing a really beautiful job. He has a drink in the book that kind of like blows my mind with its simplicity and the humble ingredients that actually lead to something that is so sophisticated. I remember having a dry, alcohol-free, sparkling drink paired with like, I forget what it was, but on the front end of a tasting menu. And I asked him, oh my God, like, what is this? And he said, it's just Martinelli's apple juice. And we have combined it with a tisane of like chervil and tarragon and then carbonated it. And just that herbal component did so much to what was an apple juice you can find in any grocery store across the country. So Piper's doing some good work. And I guess lastly, what comes to mind is existing conditions here in New York, which RIP was unfortunately, we lost it for good during the pandemic. But Dave Arnold, Don Lee, really respected cocktail guys in the city who opened this bar and were just making delicious alcohol-free drinks. I mean, I think that theirs are some of the only alcohol-free drinks that 
I have sipped as slowly as I might a whiskey that kind of like changed over time that I don't know if I necessarily will say opened up, but they were unlike any non-alcoholic drink that I've had in the sense that I could sip them and keep pace with my friends who were drinking a really boozy cocktail. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to share? I would more just share information. I mean, for those who might be struggling with alcohol, there are resources geared specifically towards those in the hospitality industry. Ben's Friends is a great organization, for example, that has chapters in cities across the country. And these are people who will understand your unique struggle of maintaining your sobriety while working in restaurants. And I guess what I want to impress upon everyone really is that like alcohol use disorder is a disease, not a moral failing, right? And it requires treatment like any illness. And I also think both of our experiences can attest to the fact that it's not abnormal to develop some kind of problem with alcohol, even if just for a little while, like it is a drug. So looked at this way, even alcohol use disorder could be thought of as unremarkable, like painful and confusing and difficult, yes, but not rare. So again, I'm not anti-alcohol. I think it's important and pleasurable and perfectly healthy for those who can manage it consistently well. But I'm also glad that there's increasingly more room to talk about the many and nuanced ways in which it's hard to do that because it is. And if you're having a hard time doing that, you are most certainly not alone. That's Julia Bainbridge. For more on Julia and her work, visit juliabainbridge.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.